Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. In modern occultism, Isis is often regarded as a bearer of mysteries and a symbol of feminine power. When Helena Blavatsky invoked her name in the title of her first major work, Isis Unveiled, she sought to reveal the hidden spirituality of the East through an Egyptian lens, a religion that she claimed sat at the heart of all worship, and was more true than the bastardized Judeo-Christian practices passed down in the West. Isis has played the role of purveying the secrets of a culture apart to Westerners going all the way back to the Roman Empire. The Greeks and Romans were quick to adopt her cult and celebrate her at public festivals and secret initiations. But what was hidden behind the veil of Isis? How much do we know about her cult today? Today on Occult Confessions, the cult of Isis. My name is Dr. Robert C. Thompson, your supreme hierophant for today's proceedings. Joining me, the alchemical actors, Johnny Cook, our patron progenitor. Yowza. Been a little while, John. How are things? Things are thingin'. <laughs> I'm delighted. What does that mean? It is what it is, man. <laughs> it's going, is it's what going. it means. It's yeah. going. <laughs> Time moves on. Malik uh, is uh, with us. Malik Hopkins as well. Malik, how are things? Um, well, my things are also thingin', but also... I'm just going to leave it at that. Oh, all right. <laughs> depressing a little bit, yeah. <laughs> I mean, John was excited about it, but Malik sounds a little more sad about the things. Savannah, how are you feeling about the things? I'm feeling great today. Sister of the 84th degree, as is traditional, because Savannah and I now work together all the time. If you're tired of hearing Savannah, just say mean things about her in the comments. <laughs> yeah. Maybe don't do sure. that. Don't do Let's that. Maybe do not. That. We, the members of the secret order of alchemical actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. Let's make some sounds and open up that order of confessors. We have some wonderful folks who are supporting us over on Patreon. Peter W. and Julian D. Nathaniel C. Hi, Dad. Says Nathaniel C. <laughs> oh, you've adopted a new kid? No, no, not me. And Nathaniel wanted to add because his dad listens to the show. Oh. oh. Hi, Dad. Um, that's adorable. Uh, Tatum, Kelly H., Maggie M., Michael G., Tom with an H., and Suits. Welcome, Suits. Ooh. And all you folks to our patrons. <laughs> yes, welcome. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, let's close up the order of confessors. Is that all we're going to talk about? What else do we want to talk about? Strange ride. Oh, of course you do. Savannah <laughs> <laughs> has a new episode about Buzzy. I well, uh, so a, a literal animatronic that was probably weighs like 300 pounds was stolen from Walt Disney World, and we still won't know where it is, and it's amazing. It's an amazing yeah. story. You should go listen to it on Strange Ride. And next month, we're going to share an episode, and Savannah is going to talk about one of the worst movies ever made called Love and a Leash, and I'm going to talk about why people fantasize about having sex with animals. Uh, Riveting. Here on Strange Ride. <laughs> Nobody actually has sex with an animal in that movie, I just know, to be clear. I that's the but... fantasy undergirding the entire affair. Anyway, something yeah, to make so a sense. Go listen to Strange Rock. Close up this damn order. Do, do, do. 
The story of Isis and Osiris is a familiar one, but it's worth revisiting insofar as there are often details we forget in stories like this that we've heard since grade school. You guys have heard this one a long time, right, Malik? You've heard this before, Isis and Osiris. I remember the names. I can't tell you that I remember the story. Nothing that happened to them. Osiris gets his parts cut up. Sound familiar? No. no. John, you know this one? Uh, Vaguely, yes. Savannah? Yeah, he gets his parts cut up and doesn't Isis because... She's his mom, right? Wife. Oh. And sister. Sister oh, wife. Right. Sorry. I got confused because I... Hold on. <laughs> I might I be was, thinking of Oedipus uh, here. Egyptian mythology was my special interest when I was a child, so... <laughs> no, Cyrus is a different guy. <laughs> yes. But, uh... He's the, he's the son, right? That's or, or Ra. He, yeah, no, no, that's no. Ra. I mean, like, he's the son of the, of the, the main guy. Of Ra? Right, because one of, sort of is the main guy, depending on who you talk to. Because one of them dies and has to come back, right? And that's Osiris. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's what, that's what I was saying. He's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. but he's the son of somebody. And Set was the Big. one who cut him up. True, correct. Yes, and Isis took. But his who's body. Osiris's dad? Let me just tell you the story. The Egyptian gods... <laughs> to answer your question, Rob, you don't know. Okay, so the Egyptian gods were subsumed by Greek and Roman culture when Egypt became part of Greece under Alexander and Rome under Mark Antony and Augustus Caesar, resulting in a blend of Greco-Roman and Egyptian deities. The version of their myth recorded by Plutarch begins with Hermes, who desired Rhea, but the sun had cursed her never to give birth during any of the days of the year, which is a lot of days... <laughs> And so, so when Hermes gambled with the moon and won enough time from the year for Rhea to consort with him and give birth to Osiris, the elder Horus. Um, oh, so she now has a series of children. So uh, this, essentially what Hermes did was, I think this is a way of like balancing the calendar. If you have an even number of days in every month, then the calendar's not quite right. So these five extra days were the days during which she conceived these children. We have the leap year. Like there's always a... A I was about to ask if it was calendar. always February 29th. Yeah, basically. So they had sex on February 29th. All the kids had the same birthday. Yes. Uh, so wait, but he just wanted to sleep with her. He could yes. have slept with her and just not had kids. Yeah, but he wants those children. He's oh. Hermes. He doesn't mess around. He doesn't waste time. He doesn't waste seed. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I don't know. That needs to be on a t-shirt. He doesn't waste seed. He's Hermes. He doesn't waste seed. No. I don't waste seed. Anyway. Uh... <laughs> These are the kids they had. Osiris, the elder Horus, Typhon, also known as Set, who burst through her side. Oh. Nephthys and <laughs> Isis. That's that ain't good. Uh, so this is, it's coming from Plutarch who, who Greekifies it. So that's why we say Typhon instead of Set in this version of the tale, but, but they overlap. While Horus appears to be the child of Rhea and Hermes in this version of events, he's actually the child of Isis and Osiris because he was conceived and birthed in the darkness of Rhea's womb when oh. Isis and Osiris were enamored of and consorted with each other. Mm. That's what happens when you give birth to a god or several gods. So, or before you give birth to a god they could or several be, gods. Yeah, before you conceive multiple gods in your womb, must understand they may or may not create so yet another god while like... they're there. So before you're a mom, you're a grandmother. Yes. Nice. True. All at the same moment. Oh, Wait, no. What? oh no. So she had triplets? Quintuplets, really. Quintuplets, okay. Yeah, I mean, she had quadruplets plus a kid who wasn't hers, but it was hers. Grandchild. Oh, yes. There you go. Whoa. While what? Horus appears to be the... Oh, sorry, I said They that. left this out of my uh, Egyptian books when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> a little too sexy. A little too sexy. 
Typhon and Nephthys became the rivals of Isis and Osiris, Typhon more than Nephthys. The name Typhon is a bit strange, as I was saying. Traditionally, Osiris's enemy is Set, Sven is right, who is the god of destruction. Uh, kind of like uh, Shiva overlap. Plutarch overlapped Set with the Greek monster Typhon who fathered Cerberus, the Hydra, and the Chimera, giving us Typhon instead of the more traditional Set. Interestingly, the animal head of Set is a bit like the Chimera, unidentifiable to modern Egyptologists. They just call it the Set Head. Uh, he has a long nose and tall ears, which could be any number of creatures. Uh, so yeah, they call it the Set Animal. Nobody knows what he's supposed to be. Nephthys disguised herself as Isis and Osiris joined with her and their child was Anubis, the jackal-headed god who looks a little bit like Set, but they're not the same. The god of death, right? Yes, yeah. Uh, Isis uh, then uh, brought up the child of Nephthys and Osiris because Nephthys abandoned Anubis for fear of her Set or Typhon. Aside from this episode of adultery, though, Nephthys is in Egypt mythology, Egyptian mythology, more of a partner to Isis than an enemy. Not sexually, but you know they, they hang out together. She helps Isis collect the pieces of Osiris in many versions of the myth and joins her as a goddess of funerary rites. That's what rites. it was. Set scattered the pieces and yeah. Iris, Isis collected them. Let's get into that. So, Set or Typhon made a beautiful chest and offered to give it to any god who could fit perfectly inside of it. I Oh, you're having childhood I, flashbacks? Well, okay, so I read... It, I was not into Percy Jackson, but the guy who oh. wrote the Percy Jackson series, which is like Greek gods are real, he also wrote a version where Egyptian gods are real. Mm -hmm. And that was called the Red Pyramid series. And I loved that series when uh -huh. I was a kid. And Set was the main the villain. The Kane Chronicles, right? Yes, yeah. the Kane Chronicles. And Set was the main villain. And they would talk to him all the time. And he was awesome. I loved him. <laughs> you always liked the bad guy. I know. I've clearly missed out on some of these stories. Hey, I'm, I'm giving them to you right now. <laughs> That's good. Oh, sorry. Getting well, educated. The bimbo. <laughs> <laughs> Monique is desperate for stories, bimbo. Why shouldn't he? We got to quit doing that. <laughs> People are going to misunderstand what we're doing here. Yeah. Um, it had been, uh, what was I saying? So the box had, of course, been made for Osiris in advance, like they secretly measured him. Uh, and it only fed Osiris. And once he crawled inside, set and nailed him inside, uh, then poured like molten like metal over it to keep him in there and tossed him in the mouth of the Nile. The chest beached in the town of Bibelos, where it was overgrown with heather and the wood with the chest inside of it was worked into a pillar of the home of the king of Bibelos. Isis arrived and discovered the chest inside of the pillar, and she was sad and wanted to like just hang out with this chest where <laughs> Osiris was, but it was inside a pillar. Uh, so she decided to join the queen's maidservants, plating their hair and imparting her own fragrance to them. She had a good fragrance, Isis. Hmm. Like Malik. That's but me. she's a goddess. She couldn't get the chest out of a pillar? Well, yeah, she didn't want to be rude. Ah, uh, that's fair. It's not her pillar to no, smash. Wait, you used. said the pillar was poured and filled with. You said it was filled with metal. You said the chest has been yeah coated with metal, and but it's grown inside of this giant wood piece uh, that's now been used as a pillar. Gotcha. Yeah. So uh, a box inside of a box inside of another box. Not like Russian pillar. dolls. Exactly. No, no, except a person inside of a box. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> so you put a Russian doll in a box in another place. <laughs> Isis's skill and scent did not go unnoticed as she became so close with the queen that the queen asked her to nurse her baby. And at night, Isis would burn away the mortal parts of the babe. Does this sound familiar? So yes, it's, this is the Demeter myth. Yeah. Yeah. But it's coming back now in the Isis myth. 
because Plutarch records it, he blends a lot of the mythology of the other goddesses oh. into the Isis myth. Also, so they take... Okay. So she's not putting the baby in the fire like Demeter did. No, I think she is. She's burning oh. it away. She's burning away the mortal, mortal parts. Oh, I misunderstood. Yeah, same idea. I thought you meant that she was cutting up this baby to remake no, 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 Osiris. No, no, no. And I was like, I thought Set cut him up. But I, no, she's I not cutting him up. She's Sorry. burning him up. Mm. He's on fire. That baby's on fire. When the queen discovered uh, that, you know, her baby was on fire, she cried out. And Isis identified herself as Isis and asked them to cut Osiris's chest out of the pillar. She was like, okay, you caught me. Fine, I'm here for him. He's a guy. There's a guy in your pillar. Couldn't she have He's done that, like, to begin with? It would have saved a lot of trouble, but then we wouldn't have had this whole weird baby thing, which Plutarch enjoys. When they mm. did cut him out, she threw herself on the box and cried out so terribly that the king's youngest son died right then and there. Oh, oh no. Isis? And Come on. She wept over Osiris, so the king's other son crept up behind her, and she gave him such a look that he too died right then and there. Oh, oh. I wish I had that power. It's kind of hilarious. <laughs> And it's hilarious. I wonder what he was thinking, just creeping up behind her. (laughs) She just wanted to take a peek. So was it just sheer intimidation? Yeah. Just death. Died of fear of her. looks could kill. And they can, (laughs) if you're Isis. And then Isis uh, went to go look for her son Horus and hang out with him for a while, uh, which was not a great plan because Set realized the chest had been discovered, sought it out, pried it open, cut the body up into 14 pieces, scattered them around the world. Isis collected them, but Osiris's penis had been eaten by fish. And uh, Plutarch actually names the fish. It is the Lipodotus, the sea bream, and the pike who eat his penis. So it's a big penis, I guess. I guess the way penis to go was out. cut into multiple pieces it's as well. Something, yeah. Are they each got a ball? I'm not sure how that worked. Um, <laughs> oh, no, they didn't. Did they? I don't think they get the balls. You said it's just the penis. It's just the penis. So, the he, so still... he still has his balls. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Isis found the balls. She okay, must That's have. the important part. Because we're going to conceive children. So the seed yeah. just still there. <laughs> The seed is still there. The seed. You can hear all the men <laughs> really fussing over the balls. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're really interesting. We're really worried aspect. about the balls, the men of the podcast. So, <laughs> Isis. It's the most important part. Isis constructed him a new phallus and revived him. You're right, Malik, because now we have all our pieces back. And Typhon was brought to them, set that is, in chains, but they released him. They were like, it's okay. Uh, we, 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 you can go now. And yeah, Isis, you had your little tantrum. You had your fun. <laughs> but I'm back together and I have a new penis. Isis and Osiris consorted once again, and Isis gave birth to Harpocrates, uh, also known as Horus the Younger, god of the rising sun. And that's your myth right there. It's likely that a cult of Osiris predated a cult of Isis by more than a thousand years. In Abydos, in Upper Egypt, Osiris had a cult center and was worshipped at a public festival as well as more private purification ceremonies. While myths of Isis go back to Egypt's old kingdom roughly 5,000 years ago, evidence of temples to Isis date only to the 4th century BCE in both Egypt and Athens, where Egyptians were given permission to erect a temple to the goddess. Because Alexander conquered Egypt, and so there's Egyptians living in both places. Missing from Plutarch's story, but significant to the lore of the Isis cult, is Serapis. As the cult of Isis spread around Greece when Egypt was ruled by the Macedonians, she was paired with Serapis instead of Osiris. Outside of Egypt, the Greeks embraced Serapis as a blend of Osiris and the sacred bull Apis. So she wasn't really cheating on Osiris. This god is Osiris, but also with the sacred bull. Uh, But with a Grecian twist that encouraged Greeks and Egyptians to come together in worship of Serapis. 
beginning with Ptolemy the first encouraged this worship. Mm. So let's worship Serapis, he says. That'll bring all the Greeks together with the Egyptians. Isis and Serapis remained popular through the dawn of the Roman Empire and into the Roman Empire, actually. Caesar Augustus, in an attempt to make peace with the Egyptians during his bid to control Rome, promised to establish a temple to the Egyptian divinities. But after he defeated Mark Antony in 21 BCE, he pushed the Isis cult outside Rome, but did not discourage it beyond the city limits. So when he was trying to get the Egyptians to like him, he let them set up a temple in Rome to oh. Isis. But then after he'd beaten Mark Antony and Cleopatra, he just said, Me, I, I'm not against the Isis cult, but take it outside, kids. <laughs> Take it outside. Uh, so the worship of Isis thrived on the borders of Rome. Early worship seemed to have been governed by male priests, but during the Roman Empire, Isis came to dominate the cult and priestesses reigned. There, oh. Yeah, lots of ladies. That's nice. Back then, too, they and were letting Rome. women talk. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. The Romans weren't. Anyway, there appears to have been no central authority, and so each cult operated under its own local authority, sort of like the alchemical actors. No, there's only one of us. I was about to say. Yeah. No, that doesn't check. When we open up, open up another branch. Okay. Well, Strange Ride, maybe. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're you're the priest over there. <laughs> and I'm the priest over here. We, you have local authority. <laughs> you could go home now and t tell everyone, hey, guys, I have local authority. <laughs> over this internet <laughs> Put your hands on your hips. <laughs> <laughs> the areas where the cult was popular, like Corinth... Um, held regular festivals for Isis in which animals were sacrificed, wrapped in linen, linen, and then hidden in a pit to be dug up again the following year. Mm. Like aged, a time capsule? What? Like, like a, a time capsule. Some Whoa. aged sheep. Like a fine wine. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike the rites of Eleusis, which were a one-time pilgrimage, those who were initiated into Isis's mysteries were expected to continue to serve her throughout the year and or the rest of their lives. Yes, it depended. Okay. I mean, I feel like that's sort of the case with religion, isn't it? But not... So, Eleusis, you would go and you'd be good. Like, once you received the mystery, well, you're done. Oh. You don't have to do anything else. Mm. You did your pilgrimage and it's over. You know what I mean? Seems kind of nice. Yeah, it is. It's very relieving. But with Isis, you had to keep on... Hmm. It was like a more of a membership. <laughs> A subscription. <laughs> had to pay the dues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, in the history of the show, we have had some people who have done a single episode, so those are our Eleusis people. <laughs> you guys are the Isis crew. God damn Oh, it. boy. <laughs> <laughs> One of the most important sources preserving the rituals and beliefs of the cult of Isis is Lucius Apuleius's The Metamorphoses, also known as The Golden Ass. And that was actually um, Augustine who retitled it the golden ass because he wasn't a fan but the title stuck because the metamorphosis is also ovid so it's just easier to call it the golden ass and it's funny too uh <laughs> that's so weird that's that's augustine man apuleius's text is complex and i think easily misunderstood i've read a lot of summaries of the text that don't quite get it but having actually read the book there's a lot in it that you just need to read it to understand uh, particularly as a work of occult history. It's worth taking a good look at it to parse its meaning, is what I'm trying to say. So we are going to take a good look at it. The crux of the debate for our purposes is whether or to what extent it reflects any historical truth about the cult of Isis. The golden ass is the only... <laughs> Sorry. Suddenly that just face. Struck, I just realized how funny that is. The golden ass... Uh, <laughs> Is the only fully, I'm going to say ass a lot in this show. 
is the only fully extant novel in Latin, by the way, from the Roman Empire. What extant? Only available. Only okay. one we could access. Uh, it was written in the second century CE. The protagonist goes by the name Lucius Apulius and is intended to be a version of the author himself, Lucius Apulius. Lucius Apulius? Yeah, it's like if you made a movie, Malik, about Malik. This is self-insert oh, fan fiction? Kind of, yeah. It's his own. It's his, yes, it's self-fanfiction. He's his own fan. <laughs> oh, Isn't yeah. that like Dante? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Dante, Dante so is self-insert fanfiction. Yeah. So he's like a narcissist. Sure. <laughs> I mean, you can tell me after we're done well, with the story. Well, now we give it. We can't give a bad name to all fanfiction writers. Self <laughs> That's true. Now, those are the strange ride listeners. The protagonist goes by the name Lucius Apulius, right? While traveling uh, to the house of the rich miser Milo, Lucius hears the story of his traveling companion about the exploits of a pair of witches. One day, an old man named Socrates was attacked and robbed, no relation to the philosopher, and found himself in the house of an old woman who sold wine called Mero, who was flattered, seduced, and did heartily sex Socrates. But Moreau was no ordinary old wine-selling woman who sexed Socrates. She was a magician. Whoa. She had one lover who loved another woman, and she turned him into a beaver. A man who sold wine and thus competed with her, she turned into a frog, and he had drowned in one of his own casks. A lawyer who spoke against her in court, she turned into a ram, and the wife of one of her lovers, she cursed that. Even though very pregnant, she did not give birth until the child in her womb grew as big as an elephant. On the road, as Socrates was traveling with his friend Aristomenus, who was relating the story to Lucius, they stopped one night at an inn, where Socrates told Aristomenus all about Moreau. Aristomenus worried uh, that having knowledge of this woman at all, and about her magic, might make him a target for her wrath. But Socrates reassured him, it's going to be okay, buddy. That night, as they slept, they were visited by two women who snuck into the room. One was the witch, Mero, who slit Socrates' throat and then plugged it up with a sponge as he bled out in bed beside Aristomenus. Then the two women stooped over Aristomenus and peed all over him. R. kelly What mm. the Arist ouch, Malik. Aristomenus, <laughs> but true. Aristomenus fretted that he would be accused, tried, and hanged for his companion's murder because they, you know, killed him and walked out and peed on him and he was like paralyzed with fear. Uh, but then when he awoke, smelling of piss, uh, he discovered that his friend Socrates was perfectly fine and not flayed at all. They stopped for lunch of bread and cheese, and Socrates was thirsty. Uh, so Aristomenus walked with him to the edge of a stream where he stooped to take a drink and instantly his throat split open and the sponge fell out and he died there and then. Aristomenus rode off, never looking back, and changed his name and abandoned his wife and children for fear of ever being tried and executed for murdering, murdering Socrates, who obviously died right next to him of a cut to the throat, even though there was no one there to cut his throat other than his traveling companion. Oh. Yeah. Wait, what? so this, was the sponge crazy. actually like keeping him alive? Or it's is it something like that? Yeah, until he took a drink of water and then. Because I guess like spilled the water out. got in the throat in the sponge and expanded. And... <laughs> Did he <Yeah>. notice? <laughs> well, he was dead. No, no. Oh, when the sponge, when, when no. the sponge was like when he was alive, the yeah, sponge. Was, to put, I assume he was quite surprised to be dead. <laughs> Dang. It was yeah. magic. That's it. <laughs> magic got him. That's what? Harry Potter right there. I'm confused <laughs> about the, the piss part. <laughs> Yeah, that's just why. That's the part that just like it doesn't. It, doesn't quite I was fit. thinking that like maybe he they got drunk, right? 
So maybe he just like pissed himself when he was drunk, and I mean, then that's was the like, "Oh, I just had a really weird dream." I mean, and it's then... a novel, so we don't have to find natural reasons, though. Or was it just for the haha funnies? <laughs> yeah, author's I... like, hey, "I'm gonna make him piss himself." <laughs> yeah, it's, I think it's for the funny, Malik. I think it's for the comic value of being peed on. <laughs> I see. <laughs> Lucius marvels at this tale and is particularly interested in learning more about the magic Aristomenus describes, but Aristomenus has no more to share. Lucius arrives at his destination, Hypata, and goes to the house of the rich miser Milo, who eats, sitting on his bed with his wife or his guest, now Lucius, sitting at his feet. He passes messages to Milo from their mutual friend, Demaeus, and Milo volunteers to put him up at his house where they never eat meat because, again, he's a miser. Lucius comes to discover from his cousin, who also lives in Hypata, that Milo's wife, Pamphile, is a magician, like Aristomenes Mero, magician number two, or witch. At his cousin's house, he hears another tale of magic from her guest, Bellerophon, who is missing his nose and ears. Bellerophon tells of how he was appointed to guard the corpse of a young man who had been killed under mysterious circumstances, perhaps as a result of witchcraft. He has warned to he was warned, that is to say, to watch the corpse closely, for a witch might transform herself into a fly or a mouse to come and molest or enchant the corpse. The next day, the young, a young priest arrived and cast an enchantment over the, course, the corpse to seek justice, and the corpse rose to speak. Malik's going to do this for us. Corpse line. <laughs> All right, here we go. <laughs> Why do you call me back again to this transitory life? You would know the occasion of my death, would you? Verily, I was poisoned by the means of my wicked wife and so yielded my bed to an adulterer. They will call this dead man a liar, but I can prove it to you. When they snuck into this chamber last night, they cast an enchantment on my good guard and used a spell to raise my corpse, chanting my name again and again. But by chance, my guard shared my same name, Bellerophon. And so he rose up and walked out to the graveyard where they meant to mutilate my limbs. They cut off his nose and ears before they realized they had the wrong man, and so they made him a false nose and false ears out of wax. And there's your proof. Bellerophon reached for his nose and pulled it off, and so the wife's wicked plot was revealed. Again, he was surprised that his nose came off. After hearing this tale, Apuleius worked his way home in the dark and discovered three thieves attempting to break into his host Milo's house and steal his riches. So he drew his sword and killed all three. The next morning, he was arrested for murdering the men. <laughs> you no can't just do that. No, no, not on the streets of Hypata. Oh. But at the trial. The magistrate laughed because he hadn't actually killed any men at all, but rather burst three wineskins blown up like balloons that were banging against Milo's gates. Lucius was embarrassed, but relieved, and went home to have lots of sex with the maid, Fotis. Fotis, you see. Why are... I'm lost. Why oh. are we talking about this? Because this, uh, the cult of Isis is coming. Oh, okay. You're going to have to be patient. I'm not. There's a lot going on here. A lot of magic. <laughs> a lot of magics. A lot of sex. Yeah, that too. <laughs> And pissings and things. <laughs> Fotis, you see. Fotis, you see, is Milo's beautiful maid, with breath like cinnamon and pretty milky white paps. <laughs> those, those are her bosoms. Ah, her oh, paps. I was like, I don't know what that word her means. I had not seen them, this word, in some time until I read this book. <laughs> the milky white paps. The milky white paps. This, the book was, I read that, a translation. That's an indie band. The Bilky White Paps? Oh, yes, yeah, that is 100%. Good. Um, <laughs> like the Fleet Foxes. Uh, this is the, uh, the Milky White Paps, by the way. I read a version of this that was translated in the Renaissance from Latin into English, so that's why we get these fun turns of phrase. 
They had been making sweet love into the night for days before the attack at Milo's gate, but after the trial, she took out a whip and told him to beat her for her transgressions. He has no idea what he's, she's talking about, our guy, and she tells him the tale of her mistress, Milo's wife Pamphile. Pamphile has a habit of lusting after young men of the town and working her enchantments to get them into her bed. Lusting after her latest would-be con co conquest, she sent her maid Fotis to fetch some of the man's hair from the barber. And we get the Fotis story. But the barber wasn't fooled. You come here for your mistress all the time, seeking hair from the young men I serve. The two of you are wicked enchantresses. Be gone, witch. I was beside myself. If I came to my mistress without the hair, she would beat me all night long, and then there would be no time for lovemaking between us two. But I happened across a young man shearing goats and readying to flay them, and I noticed the color of the hair was much like the color of the hair Pamphili had sent me to gather. So I gathered up whole handfuls of it and brought it home to her. And she worked her magic, and in the night, the skins of the goats, which had been turned into wine bladders, came banging against the gates of our house, and that's what you found and mistook for the thieves. So you see... It's all my fault. Lucius forgives her on condition that she take him to a, to, in secret to watch her mistress doing magic. Because remember, he's obsessed with learning how to do magic. And Fotis agrees as long as he keeps secret what he discovers. Lucius promises, just as they both realize that the courage of Venus has assailed in them, as well as their desire. And uh, so, guess what? Uh, their members have uh, also come to life, and Fotis unrays herself, and they go to bed, and they pass another night in dalliance until they are overcome by unlusty sleep. You guys? Nice. Appreciate Yeah, that's, that's, that's hot. It's hot stuff right there. Sexy. <laughs> Savannah didn't get it. I am... Um, I'm having that's trouble That's some self-insert fanfic right there. Yeah. Yes. There you go. No feel left out also didn't get it. It didn't yeah. click. The words are just sounding like words right now. Not <laughs> it is. <laughs> a few days later, Fotis ran to Lucius to tell him that her mistress was about to transform herself into an owl and fly around for a while. Okay, hang on, hang on. So, yeah. Lucius... Hanging out with the maid, having good sex times. But the maid is a witch... Not really. She, like, works for a witch. She helps the witch out. She, wants... she collects the hair for the witch. Yeah, she does. And the witch is married to... To the miser. Okay. Who owns the house. Yes. And she's about to perform magic. That also magic. has sex with the maid. No, no. Oh. Only the narrator has sex with the maid. Oh. Yeah. And the milky white paps. The milky white paps. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget the paps. So he wants to meet the witch that she works for. Yes. He just wants but to watch they, her do magic. Yes, then, learn how she does magic gotcha. secretly. Oh, but then they got distracted because they wanted to have sex so badly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like you do. Yeah, sure. But <laughs> <laughs> but now magic is happening. And oh. they must stop sexing okay. and go and watch it. All Gaze right. upon it. Yeah, this does sound really self-insert fan fiction-y. Like, the sex didn't need to be there. And I feel like that's an argument that a lot of people have about normal fan fiction. It's like, oh, I was... That sex didn't need to be there. But the paps. Lucius went to... <laughs> it's all about the paps. <laughs> Lucius, and he still got his balls. Lucius went with her to watch from a hidden place. As Pamphile stripped, covered herself in ointment from head to toe, grew feathers, and turned into an owl. Now there you gotta strip down if you're gonna be an owl. And off she flew. 
Once she was gone, Lucius and Photus came into the room, and Photus grabbed hold of a box of ointment, handed it to Lucius, who unrayed himself, covered himself in ointment, and quickly grew hooves, large ears, and enormous snout, and then the full body of a donkey. Because he didn't turn into an owl, wrong box of ointment, whose misadventures then comprised the rest of the story is about him as a donkey. An ass. Sounds like Emperor's New Groove. An ass. <laughs> an ass. It also made me think of Midsummer. Yeah, it is. Shakespeare took that from this story oh. yeah for oh. sure Fotis uh, tells him he must eat a rose to be transformed back into a man and promises to go get him one the next day but thieves break in rob Milo and use Lucius to carry off their ill-gotten gains because he's a donkey <laughs> I love that was the donkey golden huh was the donkey golden I don't know why it was the golden ass but yeah I, I guess at this point he's covered in gold the golden oh, ass yeah, oh. yeah. Uh, maybe he's blonde uh, anyway <laughs> I, I did just buy a French uh, graphic novel of this book, so I'll let you know. <laughs> that sounds amazing. If it's portrayed as, yeah. You have to post some pictures of that in the Discord. Oh, yeah, I'll do that. Join the Discord. Anyhow, uh, the, off he goes, but he can't eat a rose because he's with a bunch of dangerous thieves, and he'll just turn back to a naked guy covered in gold, <laughs> and that will murder him. So he's got to stay an ass. <laughs> So now it's getting clever, right? I love this story now. <laughs> there you go. After robbing Milo, the thieves abduct a beautiful bride, Cherry Tea. Oh, uh, so now he wants to become a human again. <laughs> they abduct her at her wedding. Oh. Charity Come on, that's is, supposed to be the best And she's day very of sad. Life. Yeah, now she's very sad. She's Not beside anymore. herself. She's worried for herself. She's worried for her husband, uh, almost husband. And there's an old woman there who is in league with the thieves and starts telling her the story of Psyche and Cupid. This is the first time the story has been recorded, by the way, in the known history of Western literature, but we'll come back to Psyche and Cupid in a bit. Charity was calmed temporarily, but then attempted to escape on the back of Lucius the donkey. Not knowing that he's a dude, by the way, because he can't talk because he's a donkey. Mm -hmm. The thieves caught up with them and threatened to punish them by slaughtering the donkey and stuffing the girl inside the donkey to be torn apart by wild animals. Kind of an elaborate plan. <laughs> it just makes me think just of over Star the top. Wars. It is a little Star wars yeah. <laughs> Um, however, when a newcomer arrives, who is also a thief by trade, he convinces them that they can make more money by not murdering her, but instead selling her into prostitution. And Lucius is kind of surprised because Charity is really happy about being sold into prostitution. And she keeps kissing this new thief on the lips. What? Uh... John, no. He realizes that the new thief is actually... Her husband. Lipolemus. Oh. Lipolemus, her husband, yeah, who's disguised himself as a thief. Oh, oh so she was I technically cheating. With herself. With her with, own husband. With her own husband, yes. but she didn't Fiance. know. Fiance. Fiance. He drugs the thieves, who still thinks he's also a thief, and when they're passed out, he saves his bride, steals their gold and silver, throws them all down into a big pit, or just murders them outright. The gold? Or the thieves? He the kills thieves. the thieves? Kills all the thieves. He throws them in a pit? Because he got them real drunk. Because they trusted him. They thought it was a thief. Yeah. Couldn't yeah. do that. Thieves stick together, man. Right. But You can always trust a thief. Thicker than thieves. <laughs> but, but what if he's not a thief? Did, did you ever think of that? Then you can't trust him. <laughs> you can't trust him. Nobody lies about being a thief. <laughs> Charity is so grateful for the friendship of the donkey Lucius that she arranges to have him taken to a beautiful pasture to be mated with the finest mares and produce meals for her. But she's deceived. And instead, he's taken off to do hard labor. Oh. He was like, damn, I really wanted to see what it was like to have sex as a donkey. <laughs> uh, he's going to find out. And we're going to talk about this on your Strange Ride episode as well. Oh, oh, I was about oh, to say, oh, is that where the fantasy comes in? Of uh, 
He passes hands from owner to owner and along the way learns the sad fate of Lepolemus and Charity when a servant from their court arrives where he's staying. And they tell the story of how they both die. Wait, they die? They do die. They, uh, they're killed by Thrasyllus. The villain Thrasyllus lusted after my lady Charity, but she would not have him and she married my lord Lepolemus instead. Thrasyllus feigned friendship, pretending that he harbored no ill will against them and had given Charity up, but it was all a ruse. One day, while out hunting, my lord Lepolemus, Thrasyllus cut the hind legs of his horse as he pursued a boar, and Lepolemus fell and was gored by the animal, and then Thrasyllus thrust him through the thigh to be sure he would die. My lady was distraught, and the ghost of my lord came to her and told her to in no wise marry Thrasyllus. Instead, she blinded him while he slept, sticking a needle into each of his eyes, and then stabbed herself through the breast with manly courage, yielding up the ghost. Lucius eventually ends up with a master named Thiasus, not to be confused with Thrasyllus, who treats him well and teaches him tricks like sitting at the table and nodding to answer questions and looking for wine to fill his cup. People love that stuff because it's a donkey. <laughs> okay, he's so, so smart on. for a donkey. He's so smart. Yeah, that's so weird, isn't it? It's almost like he's a human. Right? <laughs> he thinks he's people. <laughs> <laughs> um... But he has a rose, so he could eat the rose and become a human? At this point, but I think he's so caught up in all the shit that's going on, he just forgot so he could eat roses. Hmm. He's got a little donkey girlfriend now. Well, (laughs) that's coming, that's coming. Oh my god. So, people are delighted by his tricks, like I said, and Thiasis takes the show on the road. While he's on the road, Lucius uh, ends up having sex as a donkey with a noble, rich, beautiful matron who is a story I will tell on Strange no, Ride, as I mentioned. a real human? Yes, yes. Like a human woman? Correct. Oh my god. With a donkey. Yes, and I, you're going to get all the details on this. You really needed to do this episode today so that you can appreciate what's going to happen to you I'm at glad, Strange Ride. I guess I'm glad that I did. So, so you're going to have to listen to that Strange Ride episode. See, I'm doing you a favor here in order to hear how Lucius has sex as a donkey with a human woman. Um, then he's scheduled to publicly have sex with a woman who's been convicted of a crime, but runs away before that happens. And oh, that, that crosses the line. I, it does need line, to be yeah. consensual. Yes. That, happened, that, happens, that happened in history, for sure. We were talking about that. We were talking about the possibility that Romans made slaves have sex with animals at the circus. They, they definitely did it as a form of execution that you could die having sex with an, like a wild animal. Well, they would make you have sex with it, and then they would set them on you <gasps> to kill you afterwards. Yeah, it was like it was like to embarrass you and then kill you. Oh my god! It was like I, yeah. in the Colosseum. I, I I believe that to be true. There's some arguments about apes and giraffes being involved. I don't think giraffes were involved because <laughs> that doesn't seem possible. But. No. I read it was, yeah, it was, it was mainly like dogs of, of different kinds and that big makes cats more sense and things to like me. that. Yeah, a giraffe I could, could that. kill you though with one good whack of their neck. I don't think it can have sex with no. you though. Yeah. No, but it could kill you. Yeah. <laughs> Lucius eventually ends up with a master. Oh, we did that. Sorry. <clears throat> uh, he winds up on the shore, and this is where he finally meets Isis. On the beach at night, Lucius feels that he must have, by this point, been used and punished enough, and implores the moon as the primal goddess for relief. His prayer is addressed to Ceres, Venus, Artemis, and Proserpine, who overlap a bit with Hecate in his description. Remove from me this hateful, beastly shape and restore to me the sight of those I love. The goddess responds, emerging from the waves, wearing a crown of flowers with a circlet over her brow. 
showing the image of the moon, blades of grain, and vipers. She wears a pitch black cloak scattered with the burning light of the stars and a garland composed of every fruit. In her right hand, she carries a sistrum, and in her left, an oblong boat-like vessel. She calls herself many names. The Phrygians call me mother of the gods. In Attica, I am Minerva. To the Cyprians, Venus, and the Cretans, Diana. The Sicilians call me Prosperine, the Eleusians, Cyrus. I'm also called Bellona and Hecate and Ramnusia. But my true name is Queen Isis. Cease to moan. Soon through my providence, the sun of your salvation shall arise. Tomorrow, my priest will lead a procession. One will carry a crown of roses. Go and kiss his hand and crop the roses. My followers will let you through. Instantly, you will shake off the hide of this beast. Only remember all the remaining days of your life must be dedicated to me. I shall prolong your life, and when death comes, you shall dwell in the Eleusian fields. The next day, Lucius the donkey attends the processions which begin with the initiates followed by the priests and then the images of the gods, and the donkey steps forward, and the priest watches as he eats the roses, having seen this event in a dream, by the way, Isis sent the priest a dream, and she was like, a donkey will come to you, and you must let him eat the roses. <laughs> so he does that. Uh, and the crowd watches in wonder and awe as the jackass turns into a man, gingerly holding his privates. Still a jackass. You, can you see him? And he even describes, <laughs> like, my thighs were crossed, and I did hold my privates. Uh, the priest gave him a bit of linen. This will be a really interesting visual novel. I am looking forward to it. <laughs> the priest gave him... I only got the first half, so I had to still buy the second half. It's a little pricey. But if I like the first half, then I will buy the second part. <laughs> so the bestiality will not be on the first part. <laughs> you have to pay for the second part for that. Apologies. Zoophilia. We'll get into all this on the Strange Ride episode. But zoophilia is the preferred term, I believe. <laughs> I don't know if I want to talk Preferred term? It, um, it's gonna... It's, 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 some of it's really dark and unpleasant, but anyway. Oh, God. Should, <laughs> this is supposed to be a fun podcast. But we're gonna talk about Lucius and his jackass It sounds like sex. it's gonna be a strange ride. <laughs> his voluntary consensual sex with a matron. A ship was piled with auspicious offerings and devotions and set adrift on the sea during this rite to Isis after he covered up his parts. Then they returned to the sanctuary of Isis where they replaced the images of the gods which were in the procession and the scribe read out prayers. After this, Lucius worked to be initiated into the cult of Isis. The act of initiation had been compared to a voluntary death with the slight chance of redemption. Therefore, the divine will of the goddess was a wont to choose men who had lived their life to the full, who were coming near the limits of a waning light, and who yet could be trusted with the mighty secrets of her religion. He abstained from meat for ten days, and then joined a ritual bath. So I'm good, I've abstained from meat, I can join the cult. <laughs> Donned a new gown and went into the Holy of Holies, where he experienced a rite, the details of which he could not share. He approached death and the threshold of Proserpine and the gods above and the gods below. That's all he can tell us. Having been admitted into the cult of Isis, he still felt drawn to more mysteries and realized that some belonged to the cult of Isis and some belonged to the cult of Osiris, and he longed to be a member of both cults. And so he joined the Osiris cult in the same fashion and then performed yet a third initiation into the Isis cult again, at which point the god Osiris himself spoke and told Lucius he would become a great lawyer in Rome. And so he did. <laughs> Lawyer? That's how it all, all sort of that? lines up, yeah. You think he would have yeah, become something cooler, but a lawyer. 
It's likely that Isis Osiris and Isis again was a formula that Lucius's narrator pursued as a standard path for an initiate who sought the highest degree of initiation, although many likely settled on initiation into either Isis or Osiris and didn't feel the need to go the whole hog. Okay, so let's get to the question here. Is this true? Uh, I mean, the Isis cult stuff, not the oh, donkey magic uh, stuff. Like, um... Because there's a lot of donkey magic, and then suddenly he's describing this legitimate series of seemingly mm. legitimate series of events oh. that even in the secret, he's like, he can't reveal the secrets of the cult. So it feels like he's actually describing a religious occasion. There's good reasons to wonder whether or to what extent the story of Apelius, Lucius Apelius, uh, actually reflects anything about the cult of Isis. This was a story in which a woman had sex with a donkey, and another woman nearly had sex with a donkey. It's also a story in which two witches peed on a guy. But, despite the broad characterization of some modern commentators, the novel is by no means consistently a comedy. I don't know if you think so, donkey sex is funny, but it's consensual, so it's funnier. <laughs> I mean, it happens in Shakespeare, yeah, too. Yeah, he thinks it's funny, too. Never knew a donkey could be a pimp. A donkey pimp? A donkey pimp. Or the donkey have a pimp? Is the donkey's not the pimp? Does donkey's, he, he, the donkey's not, the prostitute. Donkey's the prostitute? Correct. But He's being whored out. But aren't pimps also prostitutes? No. That's deep, sorry. Man, that's um <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's not what I meant. Wait a minute. <laughs> Isn't the oppressor also the oppressed? Yes, in a way. That that I believe was Orwell's point on shooting an elephant. What? 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 Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. That joke was for a few graduate students out there. So donkey prostitutes. Donkey prostitutes is what we... No, we were not talking about that. Wait, so the donkey is... So the, is the donkey being forced into this or is the donkey want it? No, he wants it. She's pretty hot. Yeah, but... She's a matron. But don't... But she asked for it. But... but, but so what? so And I believe she paid the owner, the, the diocese for it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. She's rich. Oh, got it. So he is a prostitute. He's a prostitute donkey. That's true. Oh. See, my thought of like the pimp was the pimp was like this donkey's collecting women and that he was the pimp no no he's the prostitute and his owner is the pimp selling him to have sex with a lady got it there you go makes more sense okay in the same story where a man gets peed on another man has his throat slit and dies horrifically at the hands of the same witches as the point i'm trying to make here is that there's a variety of tones in the story later a woman blames lucius for her son's tragic death when he is mauled by a bear she traps Lucius in a barn, binds his legs, and beats and scalds him until he poops vigorously in her face. Comedy and tragedy are intertwined, is what I'm trying to say. So her son just died, and she's blaming the donkey, and she's taking it out on the donkey, and then he poops vigorously on her. It's hilarious and sad all at the same time. <laughs> so to say that it's purely a comedy is not correct. Mm. It's grotesque, and it's almost sublime in how grotesque it is. Yeah. Other moments are free from comedy entirely. The tale of Lipolamus and Charity is romantic, melodramatic, and tragic, but not funny. The novel as a whole has a sense of justice at its core and fairness, and while it satirizes much about Roman life, it is not always a satire. But what of the details of the rite itself? Isis describes herself as many different goddesses, and this is how Lucius invokes her. It may be that Lucius's rite is a composite of many different occult rites, and he's letting the reader know, with Isis's arrival, that this is not meant to be a specific reflection of her cult. However, it's equally possible that the cult of Isis, which was popular among Greeks and Romans, included statements linking Isis to these other goddesses, and naming her as the original or true form of the female godhead. Consider, for example, the Iris Aritology of Cyme. 
An aritology is a listing of a god or divine hero's deeds and attributes, often from a first-person perspective. I am this, I am that. I am the god of this, I am the god of that. In Siamese text dating to the second century, Isis takes on a wide range of characteristics. She says, I am she that riseth in the dog star, showed the path of the stars. I ordered the sun and the moon. I brought together women and men. I appointed to women to bring their infants to birth in the 10th month. I made with my brother Osiris an end to the eating of men. I made an end to the murders. I'm the queen of the rivers and winds and sea. I'm the queen of war. I'm the queen of the thunderbolt. I'm the queen of seismanship. I make the navigable unnavigable when it pleases me. Isis's aspects are so wide-ranging they can't really be captured among the family of Olympian goddesses. Demeter and Aphrodite are present in her references to fertility and mating, but also the African goddess Oshun, who also has a relationship to rivers. Her invocation of the ocean and navigation have their Greek counterpart in Amphitrite, the consort of Poseidon, but her sovereignty suggests a closer relation with Poseidon himself, just as the thunderbolt connects her with the male god Zeus. As queen of war, she is Athena and the Morrigan, but she also is perhaps Ares, and the sun, moon, and stars connect her to Artemis and Apollo. She is many gods in Lucius, but she is also many gods in the eyes of other Isis initiates, is what I'm trying to say. Mm. So if you look at the texts of the Isis people, they kind of reflect this openness that Lucius is talking about, that she's all these gods. While the text can be bawdy and ridiculous, it can also be very serious in more moments than just the initiatory conclusion. Lucius's main character arc, stretching from beginning to end, is his desire to learn the occult secrets of magic before being inducted into the secret rites of the gods. In the middle, he's told the tale of Psyche, which mirrors his own experience. Psyche is the most beautiful woman on Earth, and so Venus conspires against Psyche, but Cupid meets her and becomes her lover. Psyche believed she was to be mated to a monster and only meets Cupid in darkness. When her sisters tempt her to look on his face using an oil lamp, she burns his shoulder and he flees. I'm moving quickly through this because we've done this before on the show. In some versions of the story, this is where the myth ends, but Lucius relates how Psyche then worked to find her way back to Cupid. Venus assigned her a series of labors, including separating a pile of mixed grains into its component parts, like wheat and oats and stuff, fetching golden wool from an impassable river, water from the unreachable Cocytus, and a box of beauty from Proserpine, Persephone, in the underworld. Psyche completes each of these tasks and is finally taken up to Olympus, where Cupid gives her a cup of ambrosia and she's made an immortal. Similarly, Lucius makes a grave mistake when he turns himself into an ass, goes through a series of trials, and finally is met by the goddess Isis, who redeems him and offers him immortality. It sounds very similar to Hercules. Yeah, it is. It's an occult pathway, right? Confronting the god, confronting death, confronting the pit, and rising up. At its heart, I believe, Lucius's Metamorphoses is an occult novel. Significantly, Lucius Apelius's other work included a refutation of charges made against him regarding his use of magic, and his book On the God of Socrates, in which he considered the nature of demons. While we can't be sure Apelius was a, an initiate of the cult of Isis, it stands to reason that he was some kind of initiate, and this is what he sought to portray in his novel. And so I tend to believe that much of what he related regarding Isis was genuine. Uh, my final thoughts here. Our exploration of the cult of Isis tells us much more about Roman and Greek culture than it does about the Egyptians. 
Isis as the patron of a secret occult order was a relatively late invention, perhaps drawing on the secrets of the ancient Egyptians, but also coloring them with Greco-Roman philosophy and spirituality. In any case, we must credit Isis with allowing us to uncover another important occult novel, and perhaps the first occult novel. For the record, we have now discussed Britain's Chevalier Louis de B, Randolph's pseudobiographical novel, and Edward Bulwer-Lytton Zanoni, not to mention the sci-fi witch novel that inspired Jack Parsons. So I've been racking up some occult novels, and I did another one. <laughs> Thanks, Isis. Yay! Goddess of the ocean, navigation, the sun and the moon, marriage, birth, and the rites of death. Isis, this episode is for you. Final thoughts. I have two quick things. Mm-hmm. First one, um, if if the cult of Isis believes that Isis is you know representative of a bunch of different deities, is it more like a like a monotheistic viewpoint? Like she's like the only. I mean, Osiris exists. I would suggest that there's a male female deity. Okay, they may comprise. Uh, it's it there's a yeah i think there is that quality to it that all the gods are actually them okay all paths lead to them yeah the only and the, the other thing was um I, I i heard that like there was a mention of her being like diana and there being like a cult of diana the moon yeah so uh, i'm pretty sure there's there's in the new testament of the bible there's there's a, a letter that paul sent talking about like reprimanding people in like a certain area of rome like roman controlled territory because they started following the cult of diana Mm -hmm. it was as that sort of representative of the cult of isis i mean diana echoes through so much of christian history insofar as um she there there were legends of a diana cult that was witchcraft so the witches were burned for worshiping diana uh and the belief was that perhaps this diana cult was there it's conceivable that the isis cult and the diana cult could have some relationship if we accept that there ever was a diana cult but certainly in rome there would have been okay and there should have been a relationship there somehow okay yeah oh wait i'm confused so is it like they worship all the gods at once or was it just one of them i'm I'm all the gods are the one god all the goddesses are isis oh and just like you like would see them as different aspects of the same goddess. Oh, I see. That makes a little more sense. Sounds kind of similar I to don't... what like Amon Ra. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Savannah. Rick Riordan really watered down the story of uh, <laughs> Osiris and Isis <laughs> and Set. <laughs> I hereby adjourn and declare close this meeting of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors until such a time as we get together and do it again. We want to thank Arlandis Martinez. Maddie Wagner, Evangeline Olsen, Avery Carter, and Julian Dobbs. Also, Malik hung in there to do a voice for us, but Malik Hopkins is here to say bye-bye to you. See you later. And Johnny Cook. Oh, bye. Savannah Verrett. See you later. And my name's Dr. Rob C. Thompson, and and we are winding up our series on uh, ancient uh, cults. We'll do one more for you before we head over and talk about the Celts and the Druids here on Occult Confessions. I'm going to do something I don't ordinarily do and and offer a brief postscript to today's episode. A a footnote, if you will, or an addendum. Because, you see, there's something about Apuleius' metamorphoses that uh, 
Well, that bugs me. It maybe not bugs me, but sits with me as a kind of mystery, a, a mystery that, that is extremely open-ended, one that I can't solve, one that I can't have a final answer to or, or offer a clear and cogent scholarly take on, but, but a mystery nonetheless. The Rose plays a significant role in Apuleius's transformation, the narrator, that is, from beast of burden, donkey, back to human. The Rose was a significant symbol 1,600 years later, well, 1,400 years later, for the Rosicrucian brothers. For those brothers, the Rose and Cross, the Rosy Cross, represented a union of the Divine Feminine and the Divine Masculine, which was most clear in their chemical wedding. But the chemical wedding and the manifestos of the Rosicrucians, much like Lucius Apuleius's occult novel, were purportedly jokes. They were meant to be satirical or, or funny, but at the same time seemed to suggest something quite serious. This was not in the same way as Lucius Apuleius. The, the text of Lucius Apuleius's novel is at times quite funny, and then at other times quite serious. For the Rosicrucians, their text was always quite serious, in content anyway, but they spoke about it, or, or later commentators spoke about it as if it, it could have been a satire or a joke or, or a hoax. And yet there's that rose. How is the rose representing the divine feminine in Apuleius and representing the divine feminine in the Rosicrucians so many years later if there isn't some connection between the two? Let me prove to you that it represents the divine feminine just a moment. After all, Apuleius eats the rose after he is visited by the goddess Isis, who represents in this context, or at least in the context of the cult of Isis, as I've said on this episode, divine femininity total, the supreme mother goddess, a Shakti figure who is all goddesses in one. She is the one who lays the road for him to finally eat the rose and be transformed back into human, to elevate him from beast to human and ultimately from human to master, anyway, of this world and the next, at least able to transcend. It is the divine feminine that guides him. This gets even weirder if you think about Apuleius's last chapter before he's opened onto the possibility of eating the rose, before he meets Isis, two things happen. First, Apuleius offers sexual pleasure to a woman, or, or rather is given to her to provide her with sexual pleasure, and that all works out quite well for her. And then Apuleius is nearly pressed into service to demean a woman sexually, but he refuses to. So not only does he please a woman, but he backs away from the opportunity to humiliate a woman publicly through sex. Here he's obviously elevating some aspect of divine feminine sexuality, and the very next moment he's on the beach praying to Isis, who arrives and rescues him with the rose. Now, certainly modern Rosicrucians, dating back to at least the 19th century, have claimed that the rose is a symbol that stretches back through time, all the way to the ancient Egyptians. They claim you can find examples of roses and crosses, representing exactly what I'm talking about here. But these cases are made by, let's say, partisans, and there's no 
easy scholarly case to be made that the rose has actually functioned this way so consistently, or that there's a direct tie between Lucius Apulius and the Rosicrucians. The Rosicrucians, for scholarly purposes, for all academic reasons, came into existence beginning with the 16th century texts like The Chemical Wedding, or, or perhaps most famously The Chemical Wedding. And so, to trace a direct line between Apuleius 1400 years earlier and them would not be a scholarly thing to do, and yet, there's a whole lot of coincidence around the rose. A whole lot of coincidence that is extremely suggestive, but likely wouldn't stand up in a court of law. Anyway, I'll leave that mystery with you to do with as you will. <laughs> 